I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to the Hedge School podcast. The Hedge School was born from my belief that the personal, social, and environmental problems we're facing today have arisen not just as a result of our profound disconnection from the world around us, but a lack of rootedness in our ancestral traditions. The Hedge School, then, is about building a new folk culture, but one which is deeply rooted in the native traditions of Ireland and the British Isles. It's about practical guidance for living well, living authentically, and above all, connecting with our places, listening to the land's dreaming, and finding a deep, embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful, animate earth. It's about reclaiming ancient wisdom, not to hark back or try to recreate the past, but to use that wisdom to help us build authentic traditions for today. In our podcast series, we offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. The wisdom contained in myth and folk tales, connecting with our places, reclaiming our indigenous roots, the practice of traditional crafts and old ways of knowing, and so much more. If all this resonates with you, do come and join the discussion in our online communities. You can find out all you need to know at www.thehedgeschool.org. So I'm here today with Sherry Mitchell. Sherry was born and raised on the Penobscot Indian Reservation. And uh, she received her Juris Doctorate and a Certificate in Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy from the University of Arizona. She's been actively involved with Indigenous rights and environmental justice work for more than 25 years. And she's won a number of awards in 2010, the Mahani Dunn International Human Rights and Humanitarian Award for Research into Human Rights Violations Against Indigenous Peoples. In 2015, she received the Spirit of Maine Award for Commitment and Excellence in the Field of International Human Rights. And she's also the recipient of the 2017 Hands of Hope Award from the Peace and Justice Centre. So Sherry is the founding director of the Land Peace Foundation, which is an organisation dedicated to the global protection of Indigenous land and water rights and the preservation of the Indigenous way of life. She speaks and teaches around the world on issues of Indigenous rights, environmental justice and spiritual change. So today I'm hoping to talk to her about all of those issues, particularly in the context of her new book, which is called Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. So welcome, Sherry. You are talking to us from, um, from the east coast of, of the States in Maine, I understand. Yes, Quay and Willis as well for here. In Maine, it's morning, so Willis Buswell is good morning. Our territories are located in Maine in the Canadian Maritimes. There's a small portion of the Wabanaki tribes that are actually in Maine. The majority are, are still in, in Canada or are in Canada. We were all one people until the imaginary lines of these country borders were established and what I'd like to do to begin with really is to, to talk to you about the, the basic, some of the basic ideas in your book, which I guess relates to, to the work that you do and the teaching that you do um, outside. And I'm interested in a quote from the book where you said that we all come into this world with a set of instructions. These mm. instructions guide us towards our higher purpose. So I'm curious about what those instructions are and where they come from. Could you tell us a little bit about, about that? Well, of course, this is based on my own teachings and my own understanding of, of those teachings. Um, what we are taught to believe is that we come in with essentially a blueprint that's encoded within our DNA. 
that guides us towards our best life and our highest purpose. And so we have what we call a creation song, which is actually the song of that life's purpose. And our task is to learn what that is. And if we go back to the way that our our cultures used to operate, one of the things that the elders would do would be they would watch you. You would get a first name. Uh, When I was born, my family gave me the name Aliwasis Pazazim, which is a star that travels across the sky. And then when I was older, when I became an adult, and after I had become a mother and had established my um, work in the world, my elders then gave me another name to carry for the remainder of my life. And so that's in alignment with our core traditions that the individual would be watched to see where its natural inclinations led them what they were naturally gifted at, what they were naturally drawn toward. And then that natural capacity within them would be cultivated and nurtured and supported and encouraged so that the person could connect with their own true course in life and be supported in that course in life, knowing that everyone that comes in, the purpose that they carry is for the benefit of all. And so Our creation song is really that blueprint that guides us towards that best life. And we've we've become a little bit distracted in the larger society, greatly distracted by all of the busyness and the ideology attached to colonialism and capitalism that leads us to believe that there are only specific tasks that are of value. And so we, you know, kind of align our lives with what aligns with the value that's been established within the modern society. And we forget about or set aside or deny the natural inclinations that we have within us to become who we were truly meant to be in this world, in our own lives. And so the opening chapter, Creation Songs, is kind of reminding people that our purpose does have value that our lives have meaning beyond these concepts that have been developed around the value that's attached to currency, that there's a different kind of currency that we overlook, the currency of the heart, the currency of our connectedness to all life. The value of that far outweighs the value of some of these other imposed and created systems that have become so divisive within our world today. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it sounds like a, a much, a much lovelier version of an old European idea too, from from um, from Western philosophy, from Plato. The idea that a very similar sounding idea that which James Hillman, of course, uh, wrote his best selling book on, um, the Soul's Code, which is the idea again that each one of us comes into the world with a with a kind of image. Hillman called it the daemon, sometimes the acorn, but with some glimmer again of some purpose that we were intended to fulfill in this world. So it sounds like a similar kind of idea. The difference, I suppose, is that Western society really has never uh, been set up to encourage the development and the recognition and the working through of that kind of gift. And of course, that's where your people seem as ever to do it so very much better. Well, I think that one of the things that has perhaps posed the greatest challenge for my people and also has reaped the greatest rewards has been their resistance to conform to the ways of the modern society. And so we just had a a large gathering here 
healing the wounds of Turtle Island, where we had people from all over the world that joined us for a four-day healing ceremony to reconnect with our original instructions, to reconnect with our original sacred contracts so that we can begin to live in relationship with one another in a new, more loving, harmonious way, and also in relation to the rest of creation in the same way. And so when I, when I think about the ways that we have been able to endure the practices that have endured uh, culturally and the spiritual way of life, what we call Skijinawebamausawagen, which is about living in balanced harmony with all of creation. It's been the greatest gift that I've ever received is having the opportunity to have been able to learn and to walk this way of life that is the way of life that was held by my ancestors. And I also recognize that it was because of their perseverance, because of their resistance and their resilience in preserving that way of life that they suffered so greatly over over the years, that they were brutalized for their refusal to be acculturated in many ways, even though there has been some of that, but in many ways there's there's been a resistance to that in regard to changing a basic way of living in relation to the world. And so a lot of people look at Native communities and there's incredible poverty in a lot of Native communities. However, if they look deeper, they see that that is a financial poverty, but there is spiritual wealth there. So our people have had to balance the difference between fiscal poverty and spiritual poverty and have chosen to live with spiritual wealth, even though that results oftentimes in fiscal poverty. And the sacrifices that that those elders and ancestors have made so that I could have the incredible privilege of being able to inherit this way of life is something that I'm grateful for on a daily basis. Yeah, and of course, it's very inspiring to, to those of us in other parts of the world who have, who have, as you know, we've, we've, you and I have spoken about this before on your own podcast in, in this part of the world, particularly in Ireland. We also have ancestral traditions that, that encourage us to, to live in balance and in harmony with the world. They're not quite as clear in the way that they're passed down, but they're certainly inherent in all of the old stories and all of the old ways of being in the world that, that we're familiar with, that we can still track and that have come down both in literature and in the folkloric record. And as you know, a great part of my work is about trying to encourage people here to look back at our ancestral ways of being and to try and find something that, that we too can hold on to, to turn away from, uh, from that modernity that, that's, led us, that's led us so far astray. So it is always very inspiring to look to Indigenous peoples in other parts of the world who have managed to keep that tradition going. Yeah, one of the things that I think is really important because I connect with people all the time who say, well, I, I don't have my ancestral knowledge. And that's, that's really, that's a misconception. Everybody has ancestral knowledge within them. And so it may be harder to access because it is not active in the, the realm of existence that they're living in at this time, but it still is there. It's still present. And so this is a complicated, a complicated concept that I'm going to try to talk about in a very limited way. We have within our oral traditions these teachings because many people believe that indigenous oral traditions existed because there was no form of writing, which is untrue. What we under, understood, our ancestors understood, and what we now understand is that there was, you know, there's a, 
a truth to the fact that our world, the matter that we exist within and sur are surrounded by, is created by vibration and sound. And so when we think about our connection back to the first sound that created life in almost all religious teachings, there's some reference to a spoken word being the first thing that calls life into being. And so our ancestors understood the concept of vibration creating form. And so when we talk about and we tell our stories from the past, we're actually activating within us those ancestral memories. And so our chants and our songs are specifically designed in vibrational frequency with the alignment of those ancestral memories. They're, they're designed to trigger those memories. So if we think about, we run into a childhood friend and they start telling us a story. Remember when we did this, you know, whatever it is. And, and then you say, oh yeah, I remember that. And then you start to remember all of these other things that are associated with that memory. All of the things that were going on around you at that time, the sights, the smells, the sounds, you remember what you were wearing, how things felt, the feelings of that time rise up within you. It's the same with our ancestral memories. We just have to learn how to access them. And so we have to go through that relearning process about reconnecting to those ancestral memories. There's another teaching that we have about the three fires and, and the three fires are, are repeated throughout our mythology. And what those refer to are the mind centers in the brain, the heart, and the gut. And each one of those mind centers, each one of those fires is connected to a specific region of the body and governs the organs within that region of the body, but also the functioning within that region of the body because each organ is also attached to an emotional response. And so when we activate those three fires we're activating what's held within those emotional centers, uh, also within the, the structure of our DNA, the encoding within that area. And when we alight all three fires in coherence with one another simultaneously, what we do is we open a pathway for us to connect to what's called um, the collective consciousness or the Akashic record. Um, for us, we call it the ancestral wisdom. And so all of our history, all of our teachings, all of our knowledge is present within that realm. It's just that we've forgotten how to dial that up. And so we have to relearn that process. Some of our clan mothers found these wampum belts and the wampum belts uh, hold teachings and some of them are activated in ceremony and they actually uh, influence your vibrational frequency when you engage with them. And so uh, they, found, they found a set of, of wampum belts that they couldn't read some of them. They had forgotten how to read them. And so rather than saying all is lost, what they did was they took those belts and they lived with them, they prayed with them, they fasted with them, they made offerings for them, and they sat in ceremony and in meditation and prayer until the answers came to them in dreams and then in other bits of information that started to come up and, and be discovered. And soon they learned how to read those ancestral belts again, because the knowledge was still there. They had just lost their access to it. And so I want to encourage people to really let go of this myth of having your ancestral knowledge being lost, that you can reconnect with it, 
it does require commitment on your part. It does require dedication on your part. But the, the possibility does exist. It is there for you to take. And so, you know, I think that we can reconnect with that ancestral truth. Maybe we don't get every single detail about how that practice was performed or how a ritual was performed that led us to it, but we will get a pathway that opens for us that will guide us to the same place that we were meant to go to through the other rituals that we performed historically. And so, you know, everything that we need is available to us if we only sit and seek with some dedication and commitment to the process. That's interesting and encouraging. Thank you. With, I, actually, my next question had been going to be about your what you say in the book about oral traditions and vibrations of voice, mm. because of course, again, you know, we have a strong oral tradition in this part of the world, the Bardic tradition, um, which was very very formal. Um, and again, you know, one one could argue that the patterns of speech, that the reasons why the bards memorized word for word such large portions, uh, large um, sections of material was for a good reason, not just because they love to learn things by rote, but because they had some meaning, uh, because the, the saying of them in, the, in a particular order they believed had some meaning. And it's not just about patterns of speech and, and formula of speech. They also, we believe from what we can glean from the old stories, used to have certain stances, physical stances. You know, for example, they might stand on one leg with one arm out in order to give added weight to their incantations. So all of these things we have clues about. And I'm absolutely with you. If if you have if you have an inkling that this is what your ancestors did, but the actual detail of the practices are lost to us, then yes, let's let's start with that and see if we can reinvent it in the present in a way in a way that is just as meaningful yeah i think it's important for people to recognize that all tradition began somewhere and so it's okay for us to create our own traditions and so that's one of the things that people here specifically native american people in the united states and in canada have dealt with is this assertion by our governments that native people only exist as a snapshot in time and that unless we look exactly the way that we looked 500 years ago, then we're no longer Native. And so one of the things that, that we've worked with our young people on is to help them to understand that, you know, we have this rich cultural history, but we are also the keepers of the future. And so we have an obligation to create traditions that are in, in alignment with our current understanding of our place in the world based on the foundation that was provided for us. And there's also, you know, uh, an amount of trust that we have to redevelop in ourselves as human beings, because we forget that we're simply spiritual beings. As uh, many great thinkers have said, I think I heard Wayne Dyer say that, you know, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And I'm sure that he got that from, from some other great thinker who lived before him. And, you know, we, we forget that we have intuitive guidance. You know, we have this inner GPS system that will guide us towards the actions uh, and towards the way of being that is going to lead us to the place that we're trying to, trying to get to. And so when we forget about our role in creating tradition. I think that we disempower ourselves. One of the things that I recently wrote an article for Orion Journal, and one of the stories that I tell in there is the story of 
our first storyteller. And the first storyteller came to our, our people every year at the same time. We tend to have, uh, during our midwinter gatherings, is a time that we bring out all of the stories and tell all the stories. And so the first storyteller used to arrive in our community at that time and would always appear at exactly the same time, be wearing exactly the same clothing, and the stories that he told were always the same stories. And so what he noticed over time, over generations, was that the people were dependent upon him for the telling of the story the stories. And so the last time that he came, he told the people that, you know, I am going to now leave you in charge of the keeping of the stories and told them that they had to take those stories within them, let them become a part of, of them to uh, weave in their own context, make them a living part of their lives and transmit into the stories the realities that were aligned with the deeper truths of those stories and, and, and translate them into a modern context so that they would continue to be relevant for the people as they continue to yeah. grow through time. And so when we, when we weave in our own context into those stories, what we're doing is we're taking ancient wisdom, uh, making it relevant for those who carry it on, but we're also keeping it alive. We're adding our own life force to the telling of those stories. And so when we think about the way that mirror neurons work in our, in our body, mirror neurons are these, I don't know how to refer to them other than as mirror neurons. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're receptors in our brain that actually, when somebody is telling us a story of something that has happened to them, they're an eyewitness to some, mm -hmm. you know, tragic or, or very exciting event. When they're telling that story, the excitement that they're transmitting in the telling of the story, the emotional charge that they're transmitting actually responds. Uh, like um, goes into the mirror neurons of the person who's hearing that story, fires those mirror neurons in that person, and they have the same emotional response, which creates this um, sensation within the body of having experienced it themselves. And so when we think about how that connects to our oral tradition, when we're able to weave in our own life experience, our own context um, to those foundational truths. The foundational truths remain the same. It's the circumstantial experiences around that that change with the stories that we're actually able to transmit through that emotional expression of the telling of the story, a vibrational frequency that creates a response in the body of the listener um, that triggers something in their body that makes it feel within their body and within their mind as though they are experiencing it or witnessing it firsthand themselves. And so the incredible wisdom that was held by our ancestors in being able to pass down stories like the story of the first storyteller that help us to understand how information is transmitted through generations and understanding the complexities of how we are made up they didn't have a word for mirror neurons uh, 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, but they did understand how we as uh, you know, uh, human beings are made up of this a body that was connected to this electrical circuitry that's actually tapped into this larger source of knowledge. Um, they understood the transmission of 
that wisdom. They understood how it physically responded within the body. They understood that specific songs and chants in different frequencies actually impacted different parts of the body. They understood how to heal and to shift matter shamanically through specific chants and from actually stepping into active creation and changing the molecular structure through vibration and frequency. And so when we think about the incredible depth of knowledge that's possessed within those traditions that we have been given in a way that is so simplistic that we often miss unless we really sit with it, unless we really invest in knowing the deeper meaning, we often miss the deeper complexity of that. Um, and then we have, you know, memes on Facebook and sound bites about web of life and that we're all connected. And, and we think we understand that, oh yeah, you know, what I do impacts everybody else, but do we understand it on the level of quantum entanglement? You know, do we understand that all matter that was once physically connected as we were in the great seat of life, which we call Kachiniwis, um, can never be separated spiritually or energetically? You know, that's, that's the deeper thing. And, and that ties into so many other things going forward. Um, you know, when we think about that web of life teachings, the deeper understanding of it is really tied to quantum entanglement and understanding that a lot of what we're feeling in the world, a lot of the experiences that we're having, that we can't explain the anxiety we're having, we can't explain, you know, many of the emotions that rise up within us because there's nothing in the immediacy of our environment that explains it. But when we understand our connection through quantum entanglement, when we understand that we were all once physically connected in this great seat of life, therefore we're never spiritually or energetically connected, disconnected, we realize that we're picking up on the vibrations of pain that are radiating throughout our world, the fear, all of the things. And, and that's an overwhelming idea. But the good news is we're also tapped into all of the love all of the wisdom, all of the support of one another. And when we have that knowledge, we can use that knowledge to actually change the trajectory of our lives together as living beings, as creatures who are just, you know, relatives of the other creatures who live in the natural world. I guess that's um, what you call in your book, um, aligning our own process to the unfolding actualization of the universe, which is a lovely way of putting it. But how do we find our way in a, in a world where we feel that we have so little agency, you know, particularly in, in your part of the world at the moment, and for sure in parts of Europe, people feel powerless really to change what is happening around them politically socially how how do you advise um, the people that you speak to 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 be in in the face of such difficulties well there's not a simple answer to that question i mean sure. you know i For i sure work, there's not <laughs> yeah i work very deeply with people on those types of things but the the overview of that answer answer for that question is that the profound impact of changing your own structure, the profound impact of changing um, your own heart and mind, of decolonizing your mind, of removing all of the blocks that exist uh, between your heart and mind, of reconnecting your umbilical cord to the earth, being able to take responsibility for your own way of being not just in a physical sense, not just in a practical day-to-day -day walk of your life sense, although that's important, but really to change the, you know, the vibrational frequency of your own being, to elevate that to the highest level that you can 
radically changes the world. One of the things that some of the elders here have done, uh, and the men and the women have worked together in the face of what seemed to be overwhelming challenge in the political arena that was having devastating impacts on the lives of, of people on the ground was to have a core group of seven women, seven men. Uh, every morning at dawn, the women would go into ceremony and would pray for the dissolving of obstructions between the heart and mind of blue leaders, would do ceremony for an awakening of their compassionate awareness of their connection to life, uh, would pray for them to see the value of the living beings that they were harming in our environment, would see the value of every life that they were willing to sacrifice for profitability. And within a three-month period, there were 12 members of this particular political group who resigned, and their reason for resigning across the board was, I can no longer in good conscience do the work that I'm doing. And it ended up unraveling that particular group. And so we were able to witness firsthand the power of that, that we oftentimes think that we have to solve these things in the physical world. And I think that it's important to do that. Uh, in a moment, I'll talk about one of our warrior philosophy practices and, and about this 80-10-10 rule. Um, but we also have to recognize that our true power lies in shamanic practice, that shamanic practice is really about a deep understanding of how the fundamental laws of the universe operate. You can't get that training in a weekend workshop. You can't get that training even in a year of training. You know, these, these are things that you have to learn throughout a lifetime. And uh, understanding how the fundamental laws of the universe work, the fundamental laws of creation beyond creating a vision board and getting more stuff, you know, that's, that's like the kindergarten level of understanding, <laughs> you know, that was just sure. an introduction to the pop culture. Hey, look, you can do this. Uh, now we have to gain maturity in, in how we're, in how we're engaging that process. And so, you know, that's difficult have, though. Sorry, Sherry. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry that I, I before you because you might move on to another subject and I just wanted to to pick up on this point because I think it's quite an important one. So uh, when I also talk to people about this too and I hear I hear constantly negativity in response to it, which is that. It, so much is said about how people are coming into fuller consciousness on how so much good work is being done in this respect, how more and more people are going back to the land, are going back to the old traditions, are beginning to recognize the value of the spiritual practices that you're talking about. And yet the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. You know, so, so a lot of people would argue, well, that's all very well. It sounds very lovely. But the evidence out there that we see in the news every day is that it's not working. So how, how do you respond to, to those kinds of comments? Well, I think that, you know, we're in a very precarious position right now, and there's no sense in denying it. And so I think that one of the things that is connected to that is, is what I was um, just about to, to say was that, you know, we have to gain maturity in our role as co-creators of the reality that we're living in. And so when people create their vision board, and they have their big mansion and their fancy car and their ideal mate um, on their vision board, they think, hey, I can just manifest this out of nowhere. That's really childlike thinking. That's like you put a child into a room full of toys and the child's focus, you know, 
just based on on developmental psychology, you know, just the basic level of development of that child is right in front of them at the time. They're not looking around and seeing the entire room. And so they're excitedly playing with whatever they're playing with that's right in front of them. Then at the end of their time playing, you come in and you say, okay, let's clean up. And the child looks around and the whole room is torn apart. They say, I didn't make this big mess. And they get really upset. And that's really kind of where we've been in regard to our our powers and our abilities as co-creators of of the world that we are inhabiting, that we don't want to take responsibility for the big mess, but we can't have any type of right without having a balancing responsibility. And so when when we look around and look at the state of the world today and we understand that there are a lot of people that are co-creating unconsciously, they have no idea that they are responsible for the way that the world is unfolding. However, there are people who are creating consciously and they're creating their, you know, what we call here McMansion and their fancy car and their new gadgetry and more and more and more and more and more stuff. They're creating under the mindset of this never ending conquer the frontier mentality that is really a sickness of the mind and the spirit without recognizing that there are children who are losing limbs so that they can have their big diamond from their ideal mate and feel like a princess. There are people who are suffering all over the world to provide the resources that are giving them this stuff. It doesn't manifest um, out of nowhere. It's connected to the entire web of life. And so when we pray at the end of our prayers, we always say, Pasilda and Dilnabemuk, I offer this for all of my relations so that we remember that everything that we ask for is connected to the entire creation and that we are impacting the entire creation whenever we ask for anything and so we have to be mindful of that in whatever we ask for in our prayers uh, when we're speaking publicly that our voice that our desire that our emotional charge has the power to create and I think that people aren't really understanding um, that when they are sitting and they're you know, swiping through their computer and they're seeing all of the horrible things that are going on. And then they're telling their friends about it. And then they're commenting on it on Facebook. And they are artfully, we've learned to become artful commentators uh, on the despair that is, is happening in the world. We have learned to very aptly describe the water that we're drowning in. And uh, if you're in the middle of the sea and you're drowning, aptly describing the water that you're drowning in, the sensations that you're experiencing as a result of it, the sharks that are swimming around you is not going to help you get to shore. And so we have to learn how to swim uh, in a way that is actually leading us in the direction that we want to go in, which means we have to we have to really let go of our childlike dependence. We have to mature spiritually and emotionally and recognize that nobody is going to come in and solve this problem because we live in a cause and effect universe that's made up of dualities that you know has all of these underlying principles of creation that we are actively a part of. And so in the book, I have what's called the 80-10-10 rule. And so we have this warrior philosophy that's that's attached to this. But the first part of it is uh, we can't also sit on our meditation cushions and pretend that everything's okay. Oh, I don't want to think about those things because it's just negative and it drags me down. You can't sit you know, in front of your kitchen window and drinking your latte and eating, you know, lovely biscuits and then have somebody walk by who you know is starving and say, I'm going to pray for them. When you have the agency to be able to help, 
So we have to be willing to actually look at and to engage what's wrong. Uh, we have to be able to say, hey, this stuff is polluting our water and we have a finite amount of water on the planet that sustains life. We need to stop this. We have to be willing to um, look at those things. We have to be willing to understand that they need to be changed and we have to understand that we are the change makers. So that's the first part. The first 10% of our energy needs to be in uh, making a real assessment of what's wrong. The second 10% is engaging that warrior philosophy, what we call samognus. And what that means is that you stand in the path of harm and you exert just enough force to keep the harm from coming and destroying you and those you love, but you do so without harming the other. So that really is what's uh, often referred to today as nonviolent resistance. We saw a perfect example of that at Standing Rock, where the people stood in peaceful protection of the water. No matter what harm was being aimed at them, they never hit back. Um, they stayed in a peaceful, prayerful stance because you, you, know, you, you take that stance because you recognize that all life is sacred. And you can't stand in protection of the sacred, the sacredness of life, and harm the lives of others. And so you engage that Samognus stance to protect life, to protect what you love and cherish from the harm that is coming toward it, but in a way that doesn't harm others and, and amplify the, the level of harm in the world. So that's the second 10%. The remaining 80% of our energy needs to be collectively, collaboratively, and cooperatively creating the type of world that we want to inhabit. We can't stand on the steps of City Hall and say, you have to do this for us. We need to take back our own agency. We need to take back our, our, our moral autonomy and actually take responsibility for creating the type of world that we want to inhabit. You see people doing this all over the world by living in intentional community, by creating sharing economies, by standing in protection of, of these you know, vital waterways, but also in creating alternative sources of business, creating alternative sources of energy, by creating, it, creating alternative ways of being in relationship to one another and in relationship to the rest of, to the rest of life. And so we have to recognize oh, we're not children, we can't continue to expect some other person uh, to solve all of our problems for us. We have to start taking responsibility for that. We have to be willing to be inconvenienced and uncomfortable and go through the process of creating change in the world without permission, you know, without expecting somebody else to do it for us. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, in, in your tradition particularly, and I guess in many spiritual traditions, of course, I, I guess they're no different, but there are so many things that are taken for granted, which to many people in the West, many people in the modern world would be seen to be pure fantasy. So, you know, the, the whole concept of, of co-creation at a, a quantum entanglement level, the idea of spiritual guides, which you talk about um, in some detail in your book, people would just think that you're making that stuff up. I'm curious about the extent to which we can engage with those people to, to, to shift that attitude, because I do often feel sometimes that we're talking, you know, we're talking to ourselves, that there's this great barrier between those of us who accept these things as, as real and who have experienced them, and those who live in the very much more mechanistic contemporary world and how do we start to break those barriers down do you think well i think that one of the one of the good things 
about the time that we're living in, which is different from other times, is that we are living in a time where science is actually proving out what we have always known. And so when we talk about web of life, when we talk about that connectedness, science is actually proven and is actively discussing the impacts of quantum entanglement. When we talk about ancestral knowledge being contained within us, science has now confirmed that uh, genetic memory is passed from one generation to the next. And that includes more than just physical markers, but actual emotional and uh, traumatic and also um, resiliency markers. And so when we look at the things that we're trying to talk about, um, and we look at the the mainstream popularity of things like the law of attraction and, you know, what some groups are calling the laws of abundance, that's co-creation, you know? And so all of these things that, that we're talking about have really kind of come into the mainstream and become part of the pop culture in a lot of ways, but also are being validated by the scientific community. So we actually live in a time where we have a greater ability to be able to help people understand these things, regardless of what they believe spiritually, on a real practical level. So those who uh, adhere to science over spirit, uh, then they can look at the spiritual evidence that suggests that the things that we're saying is true and they can actually work with those things scientifically, you know, that's, that's kind of what a vision board is. It's, a, it's an experiment for you to determine whether or not you're capable of manifesting if you follow these steps, right? And so mm-hmm. it's the same with some of, some of this other stuff. So we're actually really fortunate to live in the times that we're living in because it gives us a greater opportunity for us to be able to express to those who are skeptical how these things actually work in relationship to these larger foundational rules of, of physics, these foundational rules of how the universe is structured and how it moves and how it functions. And so I, I think that it's not necessarily as difficult as it was even 25 years ago to be able to do that, that we have an, a greater opportunity today to be able to make those correlations for people which requires us to gain a greater understanding of it because we can't explain it to somebody if we don't understand how it works ourselves. If we only have surface level knowledge of how these things work, then we can't explain how, you know, the laws or laws of motion are connected to the patterns that have been running rampant through the world for the last several millennia. So uh, understanding how, uh, matter is formed, understanding that, you know, all patterns of behavior, all patterns of society, all of these um, emotional patterns that have been set into motion can only be stopped with equal or greater force, that we are the equal or greater force that that those patterns have to come up against. And that then we have to step into our role as co-creators and step inside active creation to actually be able to change those things. So if you understand the, the deeper ways that all of these things work and how they correlate to these fundamental laws of the universe, then there are ways for you to explain them to people who are either spirit or science-based in a way that they start to understand how how we're creating the world that we're inhabiting and how we have the ability to be able to change it. And I think that that's something that was unavailable to us, like I said, even 25 years ago, but has now become 
you know, law of attraction has become so much a part of the common language, the secret, uh, which was no secret to many people around the world, you know, being released and, and going all over the world because it came in as energy does. Energy will come in on a track that's well established so that it can easily enter into the, um, the sphere of active creation. And so the energy of that entering into the mainstream came in on a well-worn track, and that was uh, the track of this capitalist ideology. Hey, I can get more stuff. Mm-hmm. Hey, I can have the kind of life that I want without having to work very hard for it. That was attractive to people who were part of the mainstream pop culture, people who had never thought about sitting on a meditation cushion or listening to any guru or following any type of discipline, spiritual practice, were all about getting more stuff. And so then there was this craze of everybody creating their vision boards, you know, running the gamut from, um, you know, you hear people in Hollywood talking about, uh, I created a vision board and I did this and I did that. And I, you know, I imagined this into being. So it's really, it's much more a part of the mainstream now than it was before. And so now really all we're asking people is to take what they learned you know, with those basics. It's like, okay, we've taught you how to add, we've taught you how to subtract, you know, the basic structure of multiplication and how fractions work. Now we're going to give you a problem to solve that's using all of the things that you've learned, right? It's like elevated levels of educational capacity. And, and this is what we're really asking people to do is to take all of the things that they've learned and to have elevated levels of spiritual capacity start to unfold in the world around us. Yeah, and while we're talking about the spiritual life and and how we manifest our lives and ourselves in the world in a, in a meaningful way, I'm curious also to hear a little bit about your tradition's teachings on death and how that great cycle plays into into your teachings. Well, I mean, I I think that death is really just a transition, and so you know the women tend to be the ones who oversee life entering and life exiting this world. And so, you know, we really see birth as an invitation that we're opening the space within the woman's body. The space is being opened for life to enter into this world. And there's an invitation that is part of that process that involves all kinds of ceremonial practices. And it's the same with death, that death is connecting with those who are on the other side and working with them to usher the spirit of that being that, you know, our loved one um, back into the hands of those who are waiting for them on the other side. And so one of the things that I think is um, important in this process is that there is as many death rituals as there are tribes and there are over 600 tribes in the United States. And so there's, you know, there's no pan Indian anything. Uh, Everybody has their own practices and their own beliefs. And so when we think about how, how there's a transition to the other side, we recognize that that life doesn't end, that it just changes form and we still have active communication with them. We actually have periods of time where we know that they're transitioning there and going through their adjustment period there, where for one year, uh, we, you know, after the, after the funeral service, uh, we have a four-day burial service uh, ceremony. And so after that four days is up, after they're laid to rest for one year, we, we try not to 
contact them. We try not to do anything other than just, you know, pray for their strength and for their transitional process and for a smooth adjustment to the other side for them. And then after that one year period, because time moves differently on the other side, then we begin starting to communicate with them again. And so one of the things that I did when my grandfather was on his way out of this world was I made a conscious effort every day. Um, and this is something that I've also taught to a number of the young people in our community and also people that are, you know, contemporaries of mine and, and even older than me that, you know, we can connect with the spirit of the person. If we make a conscious effort to connect with the spirit of those that we are in physical relationship with on a daily basis. So, you know, take some time to connect to somebody's spirit that you're in relationship with every single day. So then when they transition, it doesn't seem like there's such a gap because you're right. still connected to their spirit. And so, but also that helps us to have better relationships because when we do that, oftentimes when they're acting out in the physical, if we're connected to their spirit, we can see where the wound is. We can be more compassionate. We can be more understanding. We can learn to meet them where they need to be met so it improves our relationship with them in the physical, but it also extends and simplifies our connection with them when they transition back into the spiritual. And so, you know, one of the things that I've, that I've done in my book is I've, I've shared a lot of teachings, but not a lot of ceremonial practices because our, our ceremonies are sacred. And so, yeah. you know, there is a, there is a way for, for me to share those teachings and to encourage people to develop their own practices around those things without sharing the ceremonies themselves, which is something that, exactly. that my, um, you know, that I was really conscious of because of, of that not being, being a saleable commodity. That, For sure. Yeah. If, if you ever come across a native person who is trying to sell you a ceremony, you don't want to be doing ceremony <laughs> with them, you know? Um, I'm sure, but, yeah. but there is a, a ceremony, um, if we can maybe have you talk a little bit about this before we finish up. One of the ceremonies that you have been working on is um, a global healing ceremony called Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island. And I wonder yes. if you can tell us a little bit about that to, to finish our conversation. Yeah, Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy here in the East. The um, Wabanaki tribes, which are the, the Confederacy, is the Wabanaki Confederacy, and the tribes of the Confederacy are the Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, and Abenaki. And the Wabanaki are the most Eastern tribal communities in North America. And so Wabanaki is actually kind of an anglicized version of Chquahabanaki. Uh, Chquaban is that point of light that rises up before the sun breaks the horizon. So that first light mm -hmm. that shows uh, in the dawn and Aki is the people. So we are the people of the first light. And one of the, one of the roles that we have in North America is we are the keepers of the Eastern spiritual door. And so this is the place where first contact occurred between the indigenous peoples and the newcomers to this land. And this is the place where first blood was spilled. And so when what our prophecy tells us is that there will be lots of agreements that will come from the hands of men, written agreements, verbal agreements. Um, but the true agreement that was made here on this land was written in blood. And that true agreement was forged from the true intention of those 
that was in the hearts of those who first came here and the um, violence that our people met with after they had extended a hand of friendship to the people, certainly here in this territory. Our people really extended a hand of friendship and, and uh, brotherhood or sisterhood to help those who were coming here learn how to live on this land. And then once they had learned, then they started to kill our people. Right. And so our prophecies say that that was the real agreement was the one that was written from that true intention of the heart. And that that agreement was written in blood here under the Eastern door, which is the direction of creation. And so when we look at what's happened in North America, the spreading of violence, we see that that came from that first contract that was written in blood. And so then our prophecies say that the Eastern door closed so that no more of that could be created. And so when the people of the earth begin rising up again, united in protection of life, which we've been seeing all over the world, with people standing in protection of the water, standing in protection of the land, standing in the protection of animals, standing in protection of other human lives, united across boundaries, that at that time, the people would need to come back to the East to once again stand under that Eastern door, to pray together for the opening of that Eastern door, and to remake those sacred agreements with one another to live in a new way of being. And so that's what we're doing with Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island is we're having ceremony that fulfills that prophecy. So this was the second year and we've had people come from every continent except Antarctica to be a part of these ceremonies. It's open to everybody. There's no cost. Everybody's welcome. And what we do is, is we go into ceremony together for four days we ask for the opening of that door, and then we go into ceremony to recommit to one another, to live in a new way with one another, to live in a more harmonious and loving way with the water, with the land, with other living beings within creation as well. So we're healing our relationships with one another as human beings and healing the relationship that human beings have with the rest of life, because we're the only species that's out of step with creation. And so this, this was the, like I said, the second year. Last year, we had about 900 people that came. This year, we had 15, wow. 1,500 people that came. Um, yeah. And it was beautiful and really powerful and life-changing. And there are relationships that are being formed here that are resulting in this beautiful rippling out of this healing work in all of the places where people are coming from around the world. And so the ceremony will travel to all of the Eastern I mean, to all of the spiritual gates. So right now we're underneath the Eastern gate. We'll be there for four years. And the fifth year, we're going to go to the South. We'll be there for four years. Then we'll go to the West for four years, to the North for four years. Then we're going to bundle all of those prayers and bring them into the center for four years. And then we'll come back here to the Eastern door in the 21st year to close the ceremony. So it's a 21-year ceremony. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, yeah. that's, that's ambitious. You know, that's ambitious. it's... Uh, it's uh, when you um, have your elders offer you a spirit name as an adult, that second name. You know, there's a reason why we pray really long and hard. It took me six months to, to say, yes, I will accept the name that you give me um, because you really have to be committed to walking the way of life that that, that name denotes and carrying the responsibilities of that name into the future. So, you know, that's, that's so part that's of that commitment. So that's what you're doing with this... Yeah, that's what you're doing yeah. with this project. Yeah, my name, Wanahamu uh, Gwasit, is uh, She Who Brings the Light, and it's about exposing hidden truths and bringing them to the surface for, for exposure to the light and healing. 
What a lovely thing. Yes. And where can people find out about this project, Sherry, if, if they want to know more about Healing the Woods of Turden Island? Well, they can go to my website. Um, my website is sacredinstructions.life. Um, there is a Healing Turtle Island website that we haven't done a fantastic job of, of keeping. Uh, we've also, just because it's so busy, and we'll, we're going to you know, update it again. Uh, there's also a brand new Healing Turtle Island Facebook page where there are some pictures and videos of this year's gathering that are posted. And so, you know, we'll, we'll be updating everything now that we just finished the last day of cleanup for the gathering this past uh, Sunday, two days ago. So um, now we'll go through the process of, of doing all of the practical in the physical world things that need to be done to correspond to it now that we've, we've done what we needed to do spiritually. So um, yeah, that's, that's a, probably the best way. And then I also have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash sacred instructions. And there's a lot of information on there as well. Wonderful. Well, I shall certainly go and, uh, and look at it. I'm, I'm very inspired by that whole idea in a 21-year program. It's just lovely to see something that has longevity. You know, we're so used to things just coming and going and that, uh, that is ambitious and very beautiful. And that's a lovely place also um, on which to end our conversation. So thank you again very much for taking the time to talk. It's been a thank pleasure. You. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. I so enjoyed your conversation with us on Love and Revolution. So it's it's wonderful to reciprocate and to have this conversation with you. So uh, Kachi Williwan, thank you so much. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you all for listening to the Surgical Podcast. And if you enjoyed it, please do continue to follow our work at the Hedge School where you'll find free resources as well as paid-for courses designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places, and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. It's about dreaming, and it's about waking up. Above all, it's about dreaming ourselves awake. Our podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you're able to support our work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for The Hedge School. Or you can find a link on our website at www.thehedgeschool.org. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.